what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are talking about Minute 2 of Mad Max. Minute 2 begins with an establishing shot of the Halls of Justice and ends with an MFP officer in the middle distance working on his interceptor. First opening shot of this minute is the establishing shot that we saw at the end of Minute 1. And we actually quickly transition between four different shots. We go from the Halls of Justice to a littered road where we get that excellent typewriter sound effect where it tells us it's a few years from now. I find it interesting that that's really the only indication of time frame that we get in this movie. Yeah, George Miller did add that in to further define this post-apocalyptic visual theme that was necessitated by the budget to kind of solidify that theme. He threw in uh, a few years from now. Now, talk about the future. Now, I was thinking about this as I was going over this minute. Would you say that Mad Max is truly post-apocalyptic, apocalyptic, or pre-apocalyptic? I feel like the original movie, just plain old Mad Max, is pre-apocalyptic. I feel like we think of we think of the apocalypse as like a singular event, like a nuclear apocalypse where things happen relatively quickly and you know in a short span of time, maybe weeks or months, we go from society as we know it to fallout, fury road, everything's gone sort of society. I don't feel like that's the case here. I feel like it's kind of taking a slower route to post-apocalyptic. I feel like Mad Max is, things are seriously going downhill. A lot of society has disintegrated as we know it, but there's still a police force. Mm -hmm. And there's still, it seems to be that there's still levels of police force. I see the, um, the main force patrol I had to say that carefully because I like to think of it as the main farce patrol, as we see on a sign at the end of this minute, as like the highway troopers. If you listen to the radio really carefully, it indicates that there are like city cops or town cops, and that they're calling in help from like the the state trooper, highway patrol type guys. So in, in this movie, there's still some semblance, however loose it is, of government and a little bit of bureaucracy going on. And then in future movies, that's just completely gone. I mean, you can definitely tell between Mad Max and Mad Max 2, there is a total breakdown. And they kind of they kind of go over that briefly. There's like a small montage at the beginning of The Road Warrior where it talks about everything falling apart and devolving into gangs. It may not be the end of the world in this movie, but you can definitely see it from there. It's coming. It's everything is starting to fall apart and you're just left with normal people like people who own diners and run train stations Mm -hmm. and do automotive shops. And they're just going about their day to day because what else are you going to do when the world is falling apart around you but try and keep some semblance of normalcy? It's interesting, it just occurred to me that the theme of the apocalypse kind of mirrors the theme of Max himself, where for most of the movie we see a relatively normal Max. 
He's part of this loose society where there is still a bit of law and order, but then something happens, something definitive happens in the movie for Max and then in between movies for the world as a whole, where by the time we get to movie two, we are now Mad Max. We are now post-apocalyptic and it's much more defined. And it took us this whole first movie to get there. Yeah. I think a lot of people like to skip Mad Max in favor of going right to Road Warrior because they're such a fan of the aesthetic that George Miller really defines in Road Warrior. But in order to really understand the character of Max and his his history and motivations, I feel like you really need to watch this movie. Absolutely. Yeah. This movie is like all about telling us who Max is. The defining moment the crisis doesn't happen until two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through the movie? Oh, yeah. the His his big tragedy... Like, he has, like... He, he sees things going through the movie, and then he tries to cope with them, and then there is that turning point. It's like... Yeah, it's like 80% through the movie. Yeah. Before he actually just snaps. Yep. And um, becomes... The Mad Max that we know and love, but we'll we'll get a, we'll get into that yeah. much later on. Quick IMDb trivia: In this minute, we see a brief shot of a couple of road signs, and they read Anarchy Road and Bedlam Road, and those roads actually exist in in Australia. Okay, so I read the same. I think I said I read the same IMDb trivia list as you did. So yeah. I googled them, just like Google Maps. I couldn't find them. Oh, that really disappoints me. Yes. Because I said it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, it could be that they are no longer called those road, those names. It could just be that the sign is there. The sign is there. It could be that they're in the middle of Australia and Google Maps doesn't know that they're in the middle of Australia. Yeah. Google Maps may not just have that information. So, I mean, I don't in, know. in the defense of the movie, this sign doesn't last long. No, it doesn't last long. <laughs> but, you know... If, if someone on the crew decided, hey, this should stay up, they could have, you know, put it back. Put it back. <laughs> speaking of roads and signs, we transition from the shot of the trash-littered road with a few years from now over it, and then we do a fade into another section of road which has a giant skull and crossbones spray-painted on it. Yes. I kind of wish we saw that again. We, we never see it again, right? The entire movie? I didn't think so. I wish we saw it again because I feel like... There's something there. There, I feel like there's a story there. It doesn't look like graffiti. It looks like well done, like mm-hmm. it was done on purpose yeah. by someone who cared what it looked like. So I'm, I'm interested in what the story is there. I'm not familiar with many motorcycle gangs that ride around with road quality paint, stencils. Right! And the motivation to actually tag a section of road because it's it looks like a territory thing it does it does and hey these are these are different different gangs than you know we see here in new england maybe they do yeah run around with road quality paint and stencils i'm okay if this actually is a gang tag i'm willing to bet it's not the toe cutter gang tag because i don't feel like those guys could actually no do they that seem quality to live on a beach so yeah. we'll, I would guess we'll, we'll, def- <laughs> we'll definitely get to that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I almost feel if it's not a gang tag, which it looks like one, but if it's not, it could be something that's actually painted by the main force patrol to signify to drivers that hey, this is a dangerous road. That's true because we do see at the very end of our minute we do see the sign that says I think fifty seven fatalities. Mm-hmm. 
you know, caution patrolled by the main farce patrol. Yeah, I, I love which I love. <laughs> I love the cheeky uh, vandalism. Anytime, like I, I will not be a public figure who will stand up and advocate for the defacement of municipal signage, <laughs> but I will, as an individual, appreciate good puns. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you live for good puns. I am I am not the kind of person that is going to take someone who wants to be clever with their graffiti and put that fire under a bushel basket. I'm not going to condone it, but I'm also not going to say, hey, you stop that. I'm going to be the one who's seeing it happen and laughing at it. Yeah. So after it transitions from the spray-painted skull on the road to the um, the anarchy road... Bedlam Road, and then the uh, the big bopper car beyond it. And the first voice we hear is that of the MFP dispatcher, which I am so glad that I found the screenplay for Mad Max because so much of what the dispatcher says, it's incredibly important. It to, is! Yeah. And so much of it is layered over by people talking or sound effects or any number of things literally it's just dialogue or sound effects there's there's two categories in yeah sound anyway when the very first time that i watched this movie okay i grew up watching the other mad max movies mostly uh thunderdome of course tina turner so the first time i watched this movie was with you a couple years ago and i don't remember watching the whole movie all the way through I remember getting bored in the beginning and not and stop watching it. It's like sometime in the in that first car chase with Knight Rider. Okay. In, going in the movie's defense, you fell asleep watching Underworld. Yes. With all of the gunfights and all of the loud noises and explosions, you fell Absolutely. asleep. Absolutely. Going back to Mad Max though. <laughs> Action does not necessarily keep me interested. It's not a default uh, situation there. Going back and watching it again, and especially going back minute by minute, listening to what she says on the radio is key. It, like, sets up the entire movie. Just what she says on the radio matters for the rest of the movie. Talking about who we will, in future minutes, find out his name is Knight Rider. You know, what he's doing. Why are we chasing him? Why do these why do these guys seem so passionate about catching him? Yep. So I'm not going to go through and do a radio drama rereading of the entire screenplay um, because that would be incredibly boring. But the first thing we hear from dispatch is say this is a routine pursuit, main force repeats, this is a routine pursuit, code 44. And then the second voice we hear over the radio is Sars. Now Sars and Scuttle are March Hare. Yes. That's their car, March Hare. So Sars is being openly disregarding of Dispatch, saying, you know, this is this is a serious situation. It should be an open code blitz, and you know it. And Dispatch is coming back and saying, no, you have your orders. And Sars is like, oh, come on. He's like, come on. This is, this is a big deal. And Dispatch actually has to come back and say... You know, this is this is a normal thing. You are normally pursuing this guy, you know, liaise with Big Bopper. And Big Bopper is Roop and Charlie, who is yep. the car that we're looking at. Um, although, 
Wow, you listened way more carefully than I did. Oh, oh, I... I did not catch that whole back and forth. Oh, yeah, I... Which actually makes a note I have in the third minute make more sense. Yeah. I based... Like I said in the last minute, I watched these minutes with the script on one side of the screen and the minute on the other side of the screen because I'm trying to squeeze every last bit (laughs) out of these minutes. I don't have the script. I was not able to find it. Okay. You'll send me a link. Housekeeping... There's a link on my notes okay. document in the okay. Google Drive. So you can find that right, right. there up at the top. Because, yeah, seriously, I missed all of that. I actually have a note saying that it's call to pursue cop killer and then routine question mark. Like, this is not routine. Yeah. So This is, we're chasing down a cop killer. There's anything but routine about this. Yeah, this tells me that the MFP sees as important is not the same as what the actual officers see as important. Uh, for Sars and Scuttle, and eventually for Roop and Charlie, this is deeply personal. This is a, basically a revenge mission. And the captain, Captain Fifi McAfee, let me open up my cast and characters to get his full name. His, his name is, the captain is Captain Fred Fifi McAfee. And I'm, I'm sure he's called Fifi because he's Fred McAfee. There's two yeah. Fee sounds. Anyway, back on subject. So... He is trying to maintain control of these, like, essentially the MFP is kind of like a gang with badges. Yes, absolutely. They are more than willing to go off on personal vendettas and disregard the rule of law. Yes. Which is, Fifi McAfee is all about the rule of law, and he says in a later minute, he wants to give people a beacon of hope. Someone to look to. And <laughs> these guys, I mean, especially Roop, who we're going to meet in the next couple of seconds, uh-huh. these aren't heroes. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. These are deeply emotional, flawed individuals that just happen to be on the right side of the law. Right. And even then, it's, it's you know... It's barely on yeah. the right side of the law. They're drawing their own line. Yeah. So, speaking of... Being uh, slightly on the side of good and drawing their own line. The first face that we see in the movie is that of Roop. That fat sack of crap. So he's he's played by Steve Millichamp, who I'm sure is a super nice guy. Um, but <laughs> the first thing we see in the movie is him sitting on a big old piece of concrete looking through the scope of... Um, it was a rifle, I noticed, um, as he was going back towards the car. Um, it was um, not quite a large enough bore to be a shotgun although he does have the sawed off shotgun i'm on a uh, tangent anyway so the first thing we see him doing is looking down a scope at a couple of people having sex in a field now unfortunately for all of their their nudity work these people do not get credits in the final cast list they are just an unnamed couple which if hey if you're going to be naked in a independent movie maybe you don't want everybody knowing who you are yeah <laughs> But yeah, he's the um Yeah, he's our he's our introduction to the MFP and I think it's a rather poor representation. Yeah. He's he's not Cuz he's so like gross. Yeah. And the way like the way he sounds is like, "Oh, yeah, that's a good one." It's just so gross sounding. Yeah. And yeah, the way he laughs, <laughs> it's just oh. Yeah. 
Now, I think I think Charlie and Roop are a good mirror image. Not a mirror image. I, I said that wrong. Charlie and Roop are a good a good way to show that not all of the police officers are are professional. Because Charlie's kind of whiny. Roop is lecherous. Meanwhile, you've got Sars and Scuttle in the other car who are like... Who seem like good cops. Yeah, these are like totally legit cops. Like, they were... <laughs> I mean, granted... Sars is the one that is basically saying, screw your rules, we're going after this guy. Yeah, which seems a little bit more real world. I Disclaimer, I don't know any cops. I don't know how they behave or what kinds of lines they're allowed to push. But it seems a little bit more realistic that in, in our society there might be a cop who is a little more passionate about pursuing somebody than dispatch would like. Yeah. That seems a little bit more realistic. And you do have the extra layer of Knight Rider killed a police officer yes. in order to steal the car that he's currently driving at high speed down the highway. And so there's a lot of personal motivation to get rid of this guy, get him off the road and back into custody. March Hare gets on the radio uh sars calls charlie charlie is taking a nap uh-huh <laughs> which okay, if your partner is off in a field spying on a couple of people like might as well yeah what else nap. are you gonna do yeah and charlie is he just seems so much more green yes like he strikes me as kind of a newbie himself yes i've got some notes on that for future minutes kind of the way he talks to root sometimes yeah so yeah green is yeah yeah, so Sars calls Charlie on the radio. He lets him know that they've got a cop killer. And Charlie, almost like, unbelieving, he says, you're kidding! And it's like, they probably don't deal with cop killers all that much. This is probably an app, you know, a not an ordinary day for them. Um, I hope so. As Charlie calls for, for Roop and scares away the couple, and Roop does his, his creepy laugh thing that you were talking about, <laughs> um, and heads back to the car, the dispatch is openly warning Sars that this is non-compliance and that Main Force Patrol will not tolerate such action. This is a standard Code 44. Please respond only to that code. Code 44 indicates no requirement for a blockade. A pursuit special has been stolen. And then we actually get the dispatcher's line is cut off at the end of this minute. The first part of the line is a pursuit special has been stolen then they directly mention Captain McAfee. Although, we're just going to call him Fifi, because it's a funnier name. Yes. Before they speed off, I think we uh, we get a good look at that sign that you were mentioning earlier. The Highway 9, Sector 26, that was vandalized. Yes. To say Main Farce Patrol. Yes. I took special interest to the fact that they had 57 deaths that year. And we don't know what month it is. Nope. Like... It could be January. It could be Jan... It could be January. I mean, um... Recently, I found um, a little video that I shared with you on Facebook. It was a little video about Indonesia, which has 24,000 road deaths a year. And they're actually second to Libya. Now, I mean, Libya is it's not a nice place to be anyway, so there's not a lot of people out joyriding i'm sure in this in this political climate but going back to indonesia 25 people were killed in the new year holiday alone like just that one little span of time 25 mm -hmm. people killed on the road there's that old joke about how everything in australia will kill you and so i thought it might be fun to look at some of the deadliest uh, roads and highways in the world 
And as far as ranking in the world is concerned, the first one on the list of things that I was looking at was Bruce Highway in Queensland, um, which is ranked... They do a out of 10 ranking on uh, gapyear.com is the one that I'm looking at. But they rank it a 4 out of 10 as far as deadliness and it says uh, specifically about this route in Queensland that in your average year, Bruce Highway accounts for 17% of the national highway deaths in Australia. Um, now, granted, the road is 1,500 kilometers long, but uh, the main danger is um, illegal and dangerous overtaking, and um, I think animals also factor into that. But it's the kind of road where if you go to pass someone, you might not see in the distance someone coming the other way. And so that's where they run into a lot of trouble. It's interesting you say that because... Later on in the movie, I was noticing how fast they were driving and how, like, gentle, hilly the road was so that somebody could be a quarter to a half mile in front of you and they would be in the valley of a hill. You can't see them. Mm -hmm. They could be oncoming and you're going, you know, 75 miles an hour and you can't see them. So I was, like, worried for them that they were going to hit something. (laughs) And they do. (laughs) Yeah, and they do. Spoiler alert. But they go into this um, particular article on gapyear.com. It talks about uh, the absolute most dangerous roads in the world are places like Nanga Parbat Pass in Pakistan and Death Road in Bolivia. And those are roads that are pretty much built into the side of mountains. Yeah. So you've got about the the width of a car. Mm-hmm. And then on one side, you've got sheer cliff face going up. And on the other side, you've got sheer cliff face going down. So, of course, those would be the most dangerous roads. As far as roads in the United States are concerned, obviously, the longer the road, the more deadly it's going to be just because... Um, just odds. ...of how they how they rank it. I'm looking at ValuePenguin.com, the most dangerous roads in America... And the top five most dangerous roads, uh, number one being State Road 99 in California, there are 62.3 fatal accidents per 100 miles. So they actually rank it by distance, where the longer you are, they break down those deaths by length. And the deadliest city along that route is actually Fresno. And they get, um, now it doesn't say what the chunk of time is, but it says deadliest city, Fresno, 34 fatal accidents. And if you scroll down, number three is actually I-95, which goes from Florida to Maine. Shocker. Right next door to us. They have 55.1 fatal accidents per 100 miles, and the deadliest city is not in our area. It's not up here in New England. It's Mm. actually down in Jacksonville. (laughs) Oh. So leave it to Florida to have the most amount of accidents along uh, interstate highway that goes the entire eastern seaboard. Yeah. So... 57 deaths that year is pretty on point for deadly road ratings. Yes. As far as my research was able to uh, turn up. To put a little context in it, those numbers that you're reading are current. Yeah. This is, you know, this 57 uh, deaths per year yeah, these was back are, in 1979. These are apocalyptic projections for huh. a fictional world. Apocalyptic projections being pretty on point. (laughs) That's a little frightening. Yeah. So after Sars contacts Charlie, tells him about the cop killer, and Dispatch starts chewing out Sars for his his, um, choices, 
we actually get our first shot of Mel Gibson as Mad Max, but we don't see him close up. Mm-hmm. We don't actually see his face unobscured by like glasses or straight onto camera for a good like I think minute. 10 or 11 is the first time we actually see his face yeah. unobscured. We meet several other MFP officers way before him. They're definitely setting him up to be some sort of mythic individual. <laughs> he's he's yeah. not normal. Right. He's They're definitely like setting the him up to be the hero of this chase. Mm-hmm. As far as like film theory goes, the minute that we see him from a distance kind of passively while we've seen the the four other officers that we've seen has been you know very active that we've seen them you know that mel gibson mad max is going to be the hero of the situation the one hanging back the one that we don't the one kept in a little bit of mystery what i find interesting about this situation is so sars and scuttle are actively pursuing the knight rider Roop and Charlie are going to be joining the pursuit. Meanwhile, the two other officers that are going to be involved in this race, Goose and Max. Goose is in a diner. We're going to see him in a couple of minutes. And Max is on the side of the road working on his car. Like, his hood is up. He's actively mucking around with the engine. Uh Uh-huh. It's not like he's posted up on the side of the road with his speed gun out waiting for someone to speed by. He's like... If he saw the Knight Rider just speed by him, he would have to do a lot. Yeah. Close the hood, clean up all of the paraphernalia that he's got lying around. Yeah. He's not ready to go. No. And I think we'll get to talk about that a lot more in the next minute. Minute three, we'll see more of that. But from the brief glimpse we get, he's not even like rushing to his car. He's just doing his thing, hanging out on the side of the road. Yeah. And he can hear everything on the radio that they're talking about. Yes. Like he... He understands the severity of the situation, of what's going on, and he's not rushing. Yeah. Not not really. Now, granted, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt. Locate, Australia is a big place. and Right. Uh, we have no idea where these people are in relation to each other. Yeah. But even so, it's like <laughs> he's actively working on his car it just when seems he so should casual. be monitoring the highway. It's yeah. Like, I know that we're, we're setting up Max to be... The hero of this thing but if when you talk about like the highway patrolman that is always ready to go and ready to serve he's not really fitting that bill and i think it's just another example of the main force patrol they're not beat cops they're specialized yeah i think right now seeing him not in a hurry working on his car it puts him more in the category of roop and charlie who are lounging about and leching about mm-hmm Rather than Sars and Scuttle, who are in their car, doing their thing, ready to go mm-hmm. when they're needed. And unfortunately, puts Max more in the first category yeah. than in the second category. Which is a little bit disappointing, but at least he's not being a lech. Yeah, but when you think about 80s action movies, and I know it released in 1979, <clears throat> but... To America, in, it's, it's an 1980s Yeah, so it's an 80s action movie. That whole nonchalant and rather cavalier action hero like you start seeing a lot of those um yes he's kind of you know uh you've got snake plissken in the escape from new york series you've got kurt russell in big trouble in little china which i know is later on in the decade but these kind of cool under pressure tough guys 
Right. That just so, handle situations. So good at what they do that they don't have to rush about it. They can take their time, go get their gun, line up the shot, yeah. and still shoot the bad guy before anybody else who's being all crazy can can get in there. It's not a new archetype either. I mean, mm. you could say that from, I think it was the mid-60s was Dr. No, when they first really started making the James Bond movies. Like, it's not a new archetype of the... The co- cool under pressure action hero. Yeah, it seems also that archetype is in like the spaghetti western. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Clint Eastwood's Man with No Name uh-huh. and Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Very little dialogue. Yeah, you know, you don't hear Clint Eastwood say all that much <laughs> as uh, the Man with No Name there. But I think this wraps up minute two pretty. Well, our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash madmaxminute. Thank you for joining us for Minute 2, and we'll see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and leather men.